0: Hi, Nick Vince here. This week on The Chattering Hour, I'm joined by a Diane of horror films, Barbara Crampton. We talk about her early work on 1980s cult classics, Reanimator and From Beyond, and more recent films such as You're Next, an experience which led her to taking on the producer and starring roles in the smash hit of this year's South by Southwest Film Festival, Jacob's Wife. Up next on the Chattering Hour, Barbara Crampton. And we're back with my special guest, Barbara Crampton. Barbara started her career on TV in The Days of Our Lives, and she's had long-running roles in The Young and the Restless and The Bold and the Beautiful. Her films include We Are Still Here, Chopping Mall and Road Games. And in 2020, she was awarded a Rondo Award for her Fangoria magazine column Scene Queen. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Nick. Nice <laughs> to be with you.
0: Thank you. So I wanted to take us all the way back to your beginning, if we may. I understand you were born in New York but grew up in Vermont.
1: Right.
0: So what was your childhood like?
1: Wow, that's a big question. Um, it There was a lot going on in my childhood. Um My father was a concessionaire with fairs and carnivals, so we travelled a lot in the summertime with a fair circuit. And I grew up on a carnival lot, playing games and sleeping in boxes with stuffed animals and riding the rides and eating fried bread dough and, you know, just sort of being on my own, being a rapscallion kid.
0: Cool. So when, when did that end?
1: When I was about 13, was right. the last time that I went out on the road with with my father, right? Um, yeah, and I think perhaps uh, he was a bit of a showman, right. you know, with on the midway with this game that he had the crazy ball birthday game, and so he would have to entreat people walking by to come and spend all the money at his game, so he would tell a lot of jokes and just, you know, engage people in conversation based on what they were wearing or who they were with. And I I potentially got my love of acting just from watching him.
0: Right, right, yeah. right. But then you went on to study at uh, Castleton State uh, College in Vermont and graduated mm-hmm. with a Bachelor of Arts in theatre? Yes. Yeah. So was... was <laughs> Was stage your original intention? Was that what really drew you to perform uh, No,
1: not, I don't know. I don't know if I knew what I wanted to do back then. I I did grow up watching Dark Shadows, so potentially that would portend what my life would be like. And, you know, I really loved Night Gallery and The Outer Limits and things like that. But I also loved the theater and I love stage and I really, you know, that's really all we had at the college that I went to. And I, I do think it gave me like a lot of the English actors. I think it gave me a good foundation in character work and filling up the space with your intention that you want to force on the other characters that are in the play or, you know, in a movie with you. And, and just to have that, you know, it just felt like ballet one in a way, right? you know, of of getting that classical training of uh, doing theater. And I, and I moved to New York and I thought, well, maybe I'll do theater. I, you know, I I didn't really know. Right. But um, I actually did King Lear at the American theater of actors. And I played Cordelia in that. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I was taking classes at Herbert Burger studios and, you know, just, just doing workshops and things. But it was when I, I met somebody who was a movie of the week producer, his name, I don't even know if he's around anymore. I looked him up a few years ago. Uh, His name is Paul Pompeian and he was a friend of a friend. And he, uh, we had this thing called movies of the week in America. And he, Uh, was the producer of Movies of the Week. And I met him and he said, you know, Barbara, 75% of the work that you do in theater, you don't really get paid for, you don't get paid very much for. And 75% of the work you're going to do in film, you're going to get paid for. I think you should move to Los Angeles. And it was really him saying that, that a light bulb went off. and And I thought, you know what? He could be right. I don't know. But here I am in my early 20s and thinking, why not? I mean, I'd I've, I've been to California before on the road with my dad with the carnivals. And I really liked California. I liked the weather. And so I moved out there just a few months later with a girlfriend. I drove across country with her. She only lasted about six months. And then she moved back. Right. But I stayed. Yeah.
0: Wow. Wow. Do you remember what your first professional job was once you got to Los Angeles?
1: Yes, actually, that gentleman, Paul, introduced me to my commercial agent. And I did a couple of commercials. I, I I don't think that was my first job. I think I got that afterwards. But my first professional job was the first audition I ever had in my entire life professionally. And it was for this soap opera called Days of Our Lives. All right. So I went in, and I read for that. And I got what they uh, what they talk about in the business as a callback. So I got a couple of callbacks. And then they did a test screening with me and the lead actor that I was going to be working opposite. And they called me three weeks later and said I had the job. So I, I did that show for about a year. And that was my introduction to being on screen, really.
0: Wow. Wow. What Did, did, you, did you immediately take to performing in television? <laughs> Was it just- no, it was
1: really hard for me. It was really hard because um, I think I was very big on that show. You know, I was used to being on the stage, and I hadn't as of yet taken any film classes. <gasps> and, and everybody kept saying to me on the set, do less. Do exactly what you're doing, but do less, do less. And I was like, do less? What does that mean? Oh, so I was just doing my version of do less. Uh, I figured it out after a while, but it's, it's funny because if I go back to the beginnings of, you know, my acting training and, and subsequently I did take uh, film classes, but they talk about the energy, uh, flowing through your body is the same, but the aperture through which it flows is smaller. So, you know, it's like when you're acting on camera or on film, it's just, you know, you just, you do give a little bit less. And then when you're on the stage, You've really got to show people what you're doing so they really see it. Um so I had to learn how to modulate my instincts and right. you know and just uh keep it smaller.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, you remember. It was me. a good
1: education on a soap opera though, because I, I could do that there.
0: Right, right. So I mean because you've you're filming a new episode every week? Or?
1: Well, it's every day. Every um they day. do. They do 80 pages a day, but your character isn't always on right. every single day. If you have a heavy storyline, you might be on five days a week, but then other times you might only be on once or twice. Right. So so it would vary every week. Yeah. Right,
0: right, right, right. It sounds incredibly intense.
1: Yeah, it yeah. was at times, you know, a lot of dialogue. but.
0: Then, I mean, your first screen role, I believe, is in 1984's Body Double. Mm-hmm. directed by Brian De Palma. Was that just a casting? or were you right
1: Yeah, I, mm-hmm, no, I auditioned for that. And um, what's left in the film is only one scene, and I don't really say very much. But when I got the role, there was three scenes in the movie um, with Craig Wasson. And um, the night before I was to show up... <clears throat> I guess the casting director called or my agent called or somebody called me and said, Oh, we've cut all the other scenes in the movie. And now you're, you only have this one scene where you're having an affair with, with another guy on Craig Wasson, and he finds you. Do you still want to do it? Oh, and I thought, geez, this is Brian De Palma. How can I say no? So I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it was just, were you literally just on set for one day? Yeah,
1: just one day, yeah. a yeah. very long day, because he's notorious for doing a lot of takes of everything. So I think I, we did 60 or 70 takes of every angle. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Wow. But I guess if you have nine months to shoot a movie, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. no, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't terribly successful when it first came out, but it's become more popular yeah. since. I was curious because I know you've done horror conventions. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you find fans of the film? Do you ask, get people asking you to sign autographs from that movie?
1: Oh, not so much, really. No. Surprisingly, it's. I think it's more of a thriller in a way, and I I think that's a pretty broad genre that a lot of right. people like. It's very mainstream. Right. And, and Brian is kind of mainstream. <clears throat> I, th- I more often have people asking me to sign things for reanimator or from beyond and some of the new stuff as well, right. but they, they go back to these classic horror films that I was in in the eighties.
0: Right. No, that's because it was reanimator. I wanted to move on to next Yeah. again, just the casting or.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um the girl who originally had the part, I don't, I don't know who she was. Um, I hadn't auditioned for it as of yet she got the role, but then her mother read the script and, you know, we were all quite young at the time. And her mother said, I don't think you should do this movie. This is too, you know, risque or too freaky to, you know, this horror movie. What do you, what do you want to do that for? So they had another casting session and I was called in as a replacement. Um, I read with Jeffrey Combs and Bruce Abbott and, we all got along quite well. And I I didn't know they had the parts at the time. And I remember thinking how great they were in the audition and hoping they would get the parts because they were so amazing and so wonderful. Um, And I think I was there maybe for three to four hours. I read almost every, by the end of the day, I had read almost every scene that I had with the guys and, and Stuart kept calling me in and calling me in and, and working with us all and giving us direction. It was really a fun audition. I remember thinking, oh, this is great. This feels kind of like theater because he came from the theater and this was his first movie. Um, and, and when I did get the part, we rehearsed the whole film for about three weeks. And I, I thought to myself, this is great. This is what they do in films. They also rehearse them. Of course, this never happened to me since, no. Uh but we rehearsed the crap out of every single scene in that in that film maybe that's why it's so good i don't know
0: it's it's brilliant i love it i was watching it again the other day i've seen it before but i was just going to watch it it is just fun and i think what you've got a really nice role from an actor's perspective i think in that Mm
1: -hmm.
0: she's there kind of outside this madness this voice of reason Mm -hmm as she watches her boyfriend get sucked in by this mesmeric guy who played what, so you, you, you must've read the whole script during that Mm -hmm. audition then in that case.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Did you have similar qualms about, you know, taking this on or it was just.
1: Really? I really didn't. I read it and I thought it was fun. It seemed like a fun movie to me and it, and it seemed comedic on the page Mm -hmm. and it was also a really good role. You're right. I, she had an arc to her, something, you know, terrible happened. And she Mm. had a lot of emotional uh, qualities inherent in the role. And as a young actor, somebody offers you a role. And I mean, I didn't expect that I would be working in the horror genre for the rest of my life, but at the time it could have been a comedy and a great role. And I would have said yes, you know, and I I think I just got lucky that I was in that part, but yeah, I mean, there's some definitely, uh, you know, risque parts to the movie and over the top gore and chills and scares. And I don't know, maybe growing up on the carnival lot, I just had a different barometer for, for that kind of material. Like it didn't, didn't scare me Mm -hmm. or, or freak me out or it wasn't, you know, wasn't adverse to anything I held right. ideologically or anything.
0: Yeah. Right, right, right. And you mentioned that, you know, Stuart Gordon came from a theatrical background and you had all this wonderful rehearsal time. You also yeah. then went on to do From Beyond uh, with Stuart Gordon and with Jeffrey Combs again. And again a much meatier and quite an amazing yeah. outfit as well. <laughs>
1: I mean, I think that's probably to date one of the best characters I've ever been able to play. She was so multidimensional and she went into the beyond, so multidimensional. And just there was a lot of layers to her. She was a repressed psychiatrist and a doctor and she was uh, investigating something. She was being a helpmate to Jeffrey Combs's character uh, and... And then something inside of her blossoms and she becomes more of a sexual being and then she goes mad at the end of the film. I've never seen a trajectory like that in a film <laughs> offered to me really since. I it's one of the really the best roles I've ever had.
0: Right. So what do you feel about the way women are portrayed? Uh, in films, in horror films, mm. generally speaking?
1: Well, I think things are getting better. I mean, I do think that there's an essence of women being the more vulnerable character or supposedly the more vulnerable, you know, gender. And, and in movies and frequently in horror movies, you, there's a villain and mm. there's a hero and something or someone has to be saved, And I think it was quite natural in storytelling to use a woman in that way, to elucidate that fear and to say, this is something worth fighting for and to show the vulnerabilities. And and sometimes that would lean into um, physical uh, vulnerabilities as well. I do think that especially in the eighties most of those scripts were written by men. So a lot of it was like what a man wants to see. And I do believe that we've evolved over uh, the last number of years. And we're telling stories that are a little bit more sensitive to exploiting women, if you will. So I feel like things have gotten a lot better. I have no, I have no fear about nudity on set or, you know, in movies or anything at all, but the way that you that the way that you use that I think has to illuminate the story and not just be for oh here's something to titillate you you know yeah. um I think it's better if it's inherent in in the story yeah. I think that's a, a better use of of that um device
0: yeah yeah and I think we'll probably come back to that a little bit later on when we talk about some of your more recent stuff Or what I think watching from beyond and reanimated back to back. I was thinking there's an awful lot of male nudity in these films as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got,
1: well, I think Stuart was equal opportunity in that respect. Um, and he tried to be even more so than some, some of the guys weren't as, um, maybe as, uh, compliant with him as I was, but, um, he famously staged, uh, it, uh, he was part of the organic theater company in Chicago, a, a naked Peter Pan, or maybe that was in college. I think that was in college and he got kicked out of school for that, uh, for, for staging a naked Peter Pan. His wife was part of that as well. And, you know, I uh, you know, he just, uh, he wanted to, he wanted to go as far as you can go right. in, in all of the writing. And, uh, there was some shock value, definitely, in, in his work. Um, and it was on all levels, you know, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, he was always trying to really push you and really shock you. Right. So it's not surprising those elements are, are in his, in his work throughout.
0: Right, right. So you, you, you kind of alluded to earlier on that you've done an awful lot of horror, I mean, you did Castle Freaks, Space Truckers, Jolly Band uh, Productions, Pulse Pandas, Puppet Master, Tracers. Did you feel that you were being typecast and this is now what's the genre hmm. you, you are gonna be doing in films?
1: I guess so. I you know I think everybody's typecast. I mean you're you're typecast in the in in your work. If you're a banker, I mean my my husband is a bond trader and right. that's who he is, and that's what he gets hired for. And he's had a many different jobs as a bond trader for many different companies, but they're not gonna hire him as a dentist. You know, maybe he'll get some training as a dentist maybe if he wants to do that, but this, this is what he does. Um, and yes, this, this aspect of the business, uh, as far as horror movies, I I'm sure I got typecast, um, because of the popularity of reanimator from beyond. It never really bothered me. Um, I don't think that I lost any roles because of it. I mean, maybe I'm being naive, but I also, had a running career with soap operas. Uh, Twelve years on four different soaps, and I spent six years on The Young and the Restless, which in its heyday was pretty popular in America. Right. and yeah. and, did, and I had a regular job for six years, so that was great. I was probably typecast, you know, doing soap operas because they kept offering me those. Right. Um, and I, you know, I have to say, I didn't, I didn't really realize. That I was a horror movie actress until I came back after taking a break and did Your Next in 2011. Right. <clears throat> and I saw the fandom was just quite wild at the time, and people were asking me to go to um, conventions. And there was just, I wasn't really on any social media at the time. But after I did Your Next, all the people I worked with said, Oh, you really need to be on social media because that's how all the young people keep in touch now we're not going to be calling you on the phone or getting together we're going to be tweeting to you and I was like oh tweeting to me okay I'll join the social media um, platform so I did and and then the whole world of the fandom opened up to me and I went oh that movie did so well It sold so well and it brought me back in a a way that opened my eyes to the fact that I belong to a club that I didn't realize I belonged to, that I really was part of the horror community. I wasn't just an actor who had acted in some horror films, but I was part of this greater community of journalists, of fans, of other actors going to convention, starting to go to conventions more at the time. You know, I, I met all these amazing people when I would go to the conventions, all these other actors who I grew up and watched their movies. And I loved it. I thought to myself, Oh, this is what I do. This is where I belong. So, I decided that at that time to rededicate myself to my career and the horror genre specifically and um yeah
0: right 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 and you you mentioned um uh your next and that kind of so this was a kind of an epiphany moment for you. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it, you, you mentioned about the social media stuff, but was there any other, sorry, were there any other aspects of the kind of the independent filmmaking mm-hmm. thing that you came to appreciate or realise?
1: I, I did, <clears throat> actually, and that's a great question because uh, working on Your Next with um, Adam Wingard, he was not only a director, but he was also a cinematographer and an editor. And working with Amy Simetz, who was also on the film. She was an actress, a producer, a writer. Ty West was a filmmaker, director, producer, writer. Joe Swanberg was making, writing his own films, making them, shooting them himself and selling them for distribution. Back in those days, he was making movies for, I don't know, $20,000 and selling them for $40,000. And he would keep doing this. And I realized that when I was a young actor, I kind of stayed in my lane. I just waited for the phone to ring. And if somebody called me, great. I had an audition. Awesome. I'm there. But these people were creating content and working together for themselves. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to come back into the business and not necessarily competing with these people, but, doing the same thing that they're doing and having the kinds of success that they're having. Sure. I have a wealth of something behind me, but moving forward, do I just want to be an actor? I mean, maybe, but what if I could do something else? And I didn't think at the time that I really wanted to go into directing, but I liked the idea of how these people were all working together. So I thought, well, maybe maybe producing would be a good avenue for me to go into. And I, I just started sort of following what the, the producers on that movie were doing, Keith Calder and Jessica Wu, and they were working their way up project by project, working with different people that, you know, people that were, were um, helping them to, to just grow and elevate by each project. And I thought that's how these guys are doing it. They're they're and they're selling films now at film festivals. And that that's how the movies are getting out there. I, when I was younger, the movie had built in distribution. You didn't make it unless you had a pre-sale and somebody was telling you, oh, here's the money. And, you know, we're going to put it out at a certain time. This is when it's coming out. Now people were just making movies, and making them as cheaply as possible, getting them to film festivals, and then selling them there. And I started going to the film festivals with Your Next. And so all of that sort of coalesced into me feeling like, okay, if I'm going to come back, I really don't want to be that person that sits around and waits for the phone. I really love storytelling. I really love the work. It's really about the work for me and about characters and understanding the human condition and illuminating why we do the things we do. And, and so I, that was one of my thoughts um, 10 years ago was to kind of get into producing. And just even when you think about things, I believe that opportunities arise for you to take more chances. And, and I did with a couple of people and a couple of projects and things started to, you know, come my way that I could work on in that capacity. Um, I, I I actually had one movie that I'm still trying to make today called The Wildness, but I got it set up at a, at a big company and we were in development for two years on that. We haven't made it yet. Now we have the rights back and we're working with another company. But since that time, I made a film called Beyond the Gates with Jackson Stewart and I was an actor in that and produced that and uh, we did quite well with it. And then... Um, started working on some other films.
0: Right. What, what do you think, what do you find having taken on the new role of being a producer? What do you find the greatest challenge in that new role?
1: Uh, I think it's a a lot of the writers that I'm working with or when, when scripts come in, I, I feel like they really need a lot of help and guidance and direction And I think that the script is the most important thing. And I do feel like even 10 years ago, it was easy to make mistakes in the writing and to just keep learning and then building up project by project. But I feel like now you only get a couple of chances. And if you don't put out a good movie, it's really hard to raise the money for your projects. And so I feel like, there are a few people that have done it really well. Like Mike Flanagan has worked his way up and now he's, you know, doing really well in television and every movie that he's done is really, he's a great writer and he, you know, uh, his material and his casting and, and, and he's a great director. That's really worked for him. But I feel like this, the story is the most important thing. And I, what I tell people is let's work. Let's really work on your script a little bit more, you know. Let's let's really make it the best that it can be and develop it. And mm. then that takes time, and it can take months. It can take years, <laughs> um, depending on where you're at. I mean, I I I read scripts that come in sometimes, and they're amazing, and it's wonderful. And it's like I wouldn't change anything, but that there's very few of those. Um, so I I feel like that's the 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 one thing that is the hardest is working with new new young writers and I'm not a writer myself I'm only giving them my feedback right and and so I'm not the end all be all like it should be this way but if I bring up questions and I ask questions about things and they the writers need to work on it you know it can take them a long time if because a lot of the people that I'm working with are are, are young people and mm. it can just take them a while to to really um, hone their skills and, and really get the script in the best shape that it needs to be to compete in this environment.
0: Right, so what do you think, what, do you have a piece of advice for any a- aspiring writer um, who's sitting down and saying, I've got this great idea, mm-hmm. It film is the format for this particular story, got me mm. software... I've read all the mm-hmm. books, save the cat, mm-hmm. whatever. What's the best mm-hmm. piece of advice you think you can give to an aspiring film screenwriter?
1: I would, there's a few things that I would say keep it simple. And, but the characters have to be people that you identify with and you have empathy for, especially in the horror genre, because if something terrible is going to happen to somebody you have to care so keeping it simple but also telling a story where you care about the characters you have to put some information in there so that's hard that seems like a juxtaposition and a duality and so that's really hard to do so that's that's the first couple of things keep it simple but keep your characters have your characters have empathy right. the other thing is that film is visual So you've got to write in visual stuff. You can't just write people talking and moving from room to room talking. There has to be visual stuff happening or else, you know, it's a play, really. Um, And also I would say in today's marketplace from what I know about what the salespeople tell me is that something scary sells well internationally and I tell this to people all the time people can write wonderful characters of somebody in peril and a hero and and overcoming some tragic or horrible event or crisis and it can have catharsis and it can have you know wonderful meaning but especially in the horror genre if it's not scary it's not going to sell well internationally because culturally the thing that really transfers well is fear you know it's like we all understand fear and a psychologist friend of mine once said to me we make more decisions based on fear than we do on love so it's a quite a profound emotion to deal with and the horror genre deals with it like no other genre. And that is something that transfers in any language. So many times it's, you know, there'll be movies that'll do so well in America or in England or Australia, but they won't transfer to the other territories where they don't speak our language because there's cultural differences and they don't, you know, it's hard to quite, quite get that, you know, those character quirks and things. That's why I say, keep it simple, but, empathetic and make it scary. So that that, those are the three simple empathetic and and make it scary because everybody can relate to being scared. And how do you, how do you write a screenplay that's scary? I don't know. (laughs) When I read one, I go, Oh, this is scary. Oh my God. I love this. I get it. Um, And when you watch a movie, you think, Oh my God, this is scary. And it's, it's hard. It, it's, it's such a, it's such a difficult thing. And sometimes it really is in the filming of it. And people like James Wan are really great at mm. making things scary. Um, and Mike Flanagan is great at making things scary. So I think you have to study those filmmakers, study the filmmakers that are really good at their craft and try to, you know, not copy them, but sort of emulate what they're doing.
0: Right. Right. One of the um, you talked about uh, some of the films that you've been making recently and one I wanted to uh, zero in on uh, particularly was Reborn, mm-hmm. uh, which is 2018. I thought I really enjoyed that. And again, it's scary.
1: It's, mm-hmm.
0: it's mm-hmm. tense. and It's, it's tense. Yes. yes.
1: I mean, if you don't have the scares, you have to have the tension. That's yes. the other thing. And that's a very good point you bring up if you don't have the scares, if you keep the tension there, that's that kind of bodes into thriller territory that is as effective really Mm -hmm. as, as something being scary. And that can work too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, what,
0: uh, how much were you involved in the development of reborn or were you just playing a role?
1: I was just playing a role. And in fact, uh, that was another case of uh, they had another actress and something happened with her And I knew the director of that film and he called me on a Friday and he said, we need somebody to come in and take over this role. Can you be here on Monday? And I live in San Francisco and it was shooting in, in Los Angeles. So I read the script that night and packed up my car and I drove right down there. So I read the script one time before I started filming it and had to, you know, learn the lines as quickly as possible. But I I liked the script and I wanted to help my friend out. So I said, yes, I'll do it.
0: Wow. Wow. I'd never have known. I had had so little preparation. So how long was the shoot in that case?
1: Oh, I don't know. I think, well, we shot right before christmas and then we broke for christmas for some weird reason i don't i don't know why i think maybe because the other gal um you know her not doing it set them back and so they didn't have enough time to shoot everything before christmas so we shot for two weeks before christmas then we had three weeks off and then we came back again so i think i was better in the second half (laughs) because i had more time to to rehearse but um but i was working a lot with michael pare on on reborn, and I had worked with him in in um, the remake or the reimagining of Puppet Master, Puppet Master: The Littlest Reich. So we were friendly, right. and I really leaned on him for the for the uh, for my part, and you know talked with him a lot. And I remember one scene, I said, Michael, I have no idea how to play this scene. I'm really at a loss. Can we just talk this scene through? Can you talk with me about it? Can we discuss it so that I can kind of get in the mood and get in the feeling and the flow of it? Cause I don't, I don't know how I'm going to play this. I have no, you know, I just, I don't, I don't know. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody has their process, right? right. And I'm a preparer. I do like to prepare and I didn't have the time to prepare on this. I like to prepare, but then I like to be able to forget it if Something happens in the moment that comes to me. I feel free enough if I prepared enough that I can just go with whatever's happening. But I, I didn't have time to prepare and I had to just go with whatever. I mean, basically the whole movie was go with whatever. And I, I just this one scene, I just, you know, it, it makes me nervous even to talk about it because it was it's not a good feeling for me to feel like, oh, I don't know if I have a handle on this material yet. You know, I knew my lines, but I didn't, I didn't know how to play it. So, I mean, part of what I had to do was play that I didn't know what I was doing or how to feel. I mean, that was what was really going on with me, and so I don't want to deny anything that's going on with me either. So, there, you know, I just felt really, really at odds with myself right. uh, filming that whole movie.
0: Wow. Well, it doesn't come, I mean, it comes across as a woman who's still grieving after 16 years Mm -hmm. and naturally and understandably. So, and of course you got to work with Monty Markham as you did on.
1: Yes. Uh, and you probably know Monty, right? I've
0: met him Do a couple you? of times. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Such he's a lovely so movie. wonderful. And I had worked with him on We Are Still Here, a movie that I did in 2015 and I'm quite fond of him. He's amazing. Yeah. He, yeah. He's, he's
0: very funny. What I like about We Are Still Here is Monty Markham playing just out and out evil. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so believable. <laughs> right? yeah, And then you watch him on the Golden Girls and, you know, he's such a sweet man on that. Ch- I mean, he's been in a million things, but he, he has a range that guy and you know, who, you know, I, I think as we get older, we, we do get to spread our wings a little bit sometimes. And people put us in these interesting roles that are against our type. And that was definitely against Monty's type. And he was just he was so delicious
0: playing an evil yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. It's he, he, great. Absolutely wonderful. One of the other things I wanted to talk about was you have a column in Fangoria magazine mm-hmm. entitled Scene Queen. Yeah. How that, which won an award. It won yeah. a Rondo Award mm-hmm. last year. So congratulations on that. But how yes. do, for those of for people who've not mm-hmm. uh, had a chance to read it, can you tell us a little bit about the, the column, what it is you do in it?
1: Well it starts because um the reason they asked me to write a column was because a number of years ago somebody referred to me as a scream queen which they do uh from time to time and i don't know i just had an issue with it in that moment which i don't really prefer the term um i prefer actor but um yeah i i i put a tweet out there saying um you know, that when I do interviews and things, I usually tell people that, or tell a publicist uh, to tell the journalist, I I really don't care for the term, so don't call me one. Because I think it's kind of reductive and just doesn't really illuminate what women have been doing in these movies for so long. And the depth to, of the emotions of where we go and what we do and the travels that the characters take. And And then two outlets asked me to write an article about it. And Fangoria asked me first, and I said, "Okay, I'm going to do it." So I wrote an article. Don't call me a scream queen. Actually, was it was published on Birth Movies Death, right? uh, Which is a a defunct um, website now, but I think it's still available if people look it up. And I just talked about where the term came from, and just you know, and I don't want to make anybody feel bad for calling me that or calling other ladies that I do think that it is a term that's used positively by most fans mm. and, and saying, you know, this is our final girl, this is our queen mm. and she's in a horror movie. And, you know, but I, I just, I feel like the narrative of, of what women do in films, especially in the horror genre has come really far and I just don't think it's illuminating of what we do. So anyway, I wrote that article and then I ha- I asked 10 people or more to just give me their unabridged reaction to the term and if they liked it and if they didn't. And some of the ladies were like, yeah, I don't mind the term at all. You know, I think even Heather Langer, Langenkamp said, I don't mind, you can call me that. And, And other people, and then some women did. And I even talked to Edgar Wright about it. And he gave me a quote. And uh, a lot of people in the business gave me quotes. And so that's up there too. And, you know, everybody can take from it what they will. But after writing that article, Fangoria said, would you consider having, you know, doing a regular column and just writing about things in the horror genre from your point of view? So that's what I've been doing for the past two and a half years. Just, I just write about whatever. Um, and I, it's just, whatever comes to you, whatever's happening in the news or, you know, something, uh, I just write about it. So I continue to do that to this day and it's really, it's really been fun.
0: Right. Right. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I think having watched a lot of horror movies over the last few months, wishing, I think one of the negative aspects to, as far as I'm concerned is directors who only give, female characters one reaction to terror which is the scream at the top of the the lungs oh, uh-huh. there's no it's like okay the axe has come through the door actually i wouldn't scream i'd went you know yeah. there are other reactions to fear no
1: I, yeah it's not yeah
0: yeah it's it not, becomes a trope basically it is a
1: trope for sure yeah. yeah and i don't yeah and i don't think you're right i don't think it is that mostly when 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 people are in fear normally you're frozen in a Mm -hmm. way because when you're fearful, it's hard to move. It's hard to breathe. Yeah. You know, and the the screaming, I guess, you know, it's an effect, Uh, you know, Faye Ray did it wonderfully, you know,
0: being (laughs) in in,
1: in Kong's arms. Um, But I, you know, and Marilyn Burns of course, you know, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre screamed a lot in that film. I, I don't think it's the normal reaction. So, you know, as films get more sophisticated and and viewers get more sophisticated, we see the range of emotions that, mm-hmm. uh, in dealing with fear that people go through. Yeah. And yeah. that's a little, maybe a little more realistic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it, it's that primeval thing that I think they're trying to tap into. just like, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about particularly was... Um, jacob's wife now which you both star and produce mm-hmm. um which premiered at south by southwest earlier this month in march yes mm-hmm. yes and I've, the reviews i've seen are oh, great somebody yeah. already said yeah uh, definitely the horror movie of 2021 already and i think that is quite an accolade so tell yeah. me i know it's a long process so tell me please tell me a little bit about this process
1: well, again, you know, it comes down to the writing and everything, too. Um, this, the original script was wonderful. It was, um, it was uh, in a screenplay contest at Shriekfest in Los Angeles, and it won an award for Best Screenplay. And at the time, when it, when it was given to me, it was given to me by the original writer, Mark Steensland, and the fest director because they knew that I was getting into producing a little bit And they also thought that the lead character would be a good role for me. So I read it and I loved it. Uh, It's a vampire story. It's no secret now. So that's not a spoiler. Right. But the original script was about a man caring for his wife. And the metaphor was caring for a spouse that had uh, like a terminal illness. And I thought, well, if I'm playing the part and I'm going to develop this as a project for myself, maybe it should be about something else. So we worked on changing it to be like a woman's awakening to herself as sort of a, you know, like, um, uh, you know, like a woman finding herself or a sec- second half of her life. And, and it became more about the woman's agency and what she needed to look at in herself so that she could become a better person after being bitten by a vampire because her husband is, is just more of a repressed um, pastor in this small town. And so they've lived this sort of sheltered life and they haven't either one of them asked for more. So when this woman has been by a vampire and she has this new blood coursing through her veins and she craves more, it also changes how her husband views her and relates to her and how she relates to him. So it's really, it was really more about a marriage story with, you know, horror undertones. And um, so Mark did a few passes on it. And then we brought in a woman to do a few passes on it. And then uh, it kept getting better and better all the time. And it, it took it took a couple of years to actually work on the script and get it to a place where we all felt like it was ready to bring to a director. And then we started talking to different directors and uh, ultimately went to Travis Stevens, who was one of the producers on We Are Still Here, who I knew and had just come out with his first film that he directed girl on the third floor. And that it just happened at the right moment because I wouldn't have even really considered him, but his movie came out and we thought, Oh, well, we know Travis, we've worked with him before. Um, Let's take it to him and let's watch his movie. And we all liked his movie and he loved the material so much. So, so then um, he came on board and then we were able to raise the money based on Package of myself right. and Larry Fessenden and Travis and and put the money uh, get the money together and you know find a location to shoot in and and um, I had been working with this with this production company on the material for two two years or so before we started um, filming so quite a long time with them as well so these things take time they take time mm. um, yeah
0: wow wow what what was your favorite moment during the filming.
1: Well, I have, there's some really wonderful scenes in the movie. And one reviewer said, um, sometimes, you know, you come away from a movie and you think, oh, if there's one or two really memorable scenes that can kind of make the movie for you. And he said, and I, I, he either said a half a dozen or a dozen. I'm thinking he said a dozen, but that sounds like a lot. Anyway, he said many, there right. were many scenes in this film to him that were very memorable and I think that's true I like them so there's there's a scene there's one scene where um I need blood and I'm hungry so uh before I bite anybody else I go to the supermarket and I get some blood from the meat counter you know in the in the raw meat and I take that home and I put it in a glass and I'm drinking the blood and I'm dancing in my living room. And that was a really fun scene. And then there's another scene where I, I am, um, I am, actually, I do bite somebody and kill them and drink their blood. And there's just, the blood is all over the kitchen. And I'm licking the blood up and my husband comes in and finds me. And that's the first time he realizes that I'm sorry this is a little spoilery. Oh, sorry, a spoiler. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Spoiler alert. And he he, I I think he it
0: appears in the trailer. Yeah. The,
1: the, I'm sure that It does. Like in the trailer. Oh, you're it right. Does. You're yeah, right. It does. It does. Yeah. So We're okay. Yeah, so if people are watching this, they probably already watched the trailer for that yeah. if they're big horror fans. So um, he finds me and he says it and then I say, "Oh, sorry Jake, if it wasn't me." And He goes, "Of course it was you." And then I go Maybe it was, you know, I don't know. Anyway, that was really fun. We have some very, very fun movie moments, I'll say, right. uh, that are that I hope the fans will also think are memorable when right. the movie comes out.
0: Right. And when, and when is it? So it's made its, done its premiere at the festival. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the plans for distribution? When will people be able to see it?
1: Yeah, it's coming out April... April 16th? Is it April 16th? From RLJE Films. Right. Uh, And their parent company is AMC, and then below them is also Shudder. Right. So I believe that it's it's going to come to Shudder eventually, but it will be available uh, on VOD and digital platforms and in some theaters on April 16th um in america and i don't i don't know when it's going to be in some other countries but soon very soon after that yeah
0: excellent something for people to keep um, Mm -hmm. an eye out for um just and i know you've got creep show season two you've got an episode Mm -hmm. coming out and shudder coming any idea when that's coming going to be screened
1: yeah. Well, April 1st, I believe is their first right. episode. I'm in the second or third, but I think I'm in the third one.
0: Right. So I'll be right. in the
1: third week, but um, people are already clamoring for the, for this series. I, it, the first season was so great and it's Greg Nicotero as the showrunner for the whole thing. And, you know, he has his, um, his special effects team on it. And I mean, he's one of the masters of the business and all the special effects for, I've seen a couple of the episodes. And when I was there filming, they were setting up for other episodes. And I, I know some of the special effects guys, especially one guy worked on from beyond and actually wow. Greg worked on from beyond as well. So I was chatting with them and they were showing me some of the, the other creatures for the other episodes. And it, the stuff is amazing. It's just, you know, I mean, it's next level. So I think people are going to be um, really excited and, and delighted by what they have in store for, for the fans in season two.
0: Oh, brilliant. Oh, look forward yeah. to it. Yeah. I don't think we can get it over here, but I'm, I'll get to see it at some point. I'm sure.
1: Well, it's on Shudder. So you get Shudder. Oh, well, yes, of course you get Shudder. Yes, yeah. yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Duh. Yeah. You'll get it.
0: Yeah. It's one of those many streaming things. I not really need mm-hmm. to get back onto that. Um, so yeah. I'd just like to end with my, Set questions which I titled The Luggage in the Crypt. Um, so, kind of getting a feel of some things that you might take into the li- afterlife with you, if I may. So, start off with a film. What sort of film might you choose?
1: Hmm. I'd probably take The Wizard of Oz with me. It's one of my favorite movies. Right. Uh, the theme of that film is Happiness is in Your Own Backyard. And that's a theme that kind of sticks with me. You know, no matter where you go, there you are. You have to take everything you are with you. And um, and and it's a very colourful, beautiful, fun movie. So I, I'll take I'll take that one over the rainbow into the beyond with me.
0: That's a great choice. I'm sure somebody else mentioned that as well. I have to really? Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. I have to, I'll have to check uh-huh. my, my list of notes. What about a book?
1: book um maybe I would take Stephen King's on writing oh. because I have because I have to have something to do <laughs> and oh. you know, I could hone my, my writing skills but also in reading that book it's always by my bedside table <clears throat> and I refer to a lot because I do think that writing and acting, and editing, all that stuff is the same. It, it's the same, um, it has the same components of the how-tos of how to do things and how to showcase a moment or a feeling or a character, an emotion or an idea. And uh, I, I actually refer to that book a lot when I'm, you know, for acting because right. I, I, I think it's it, it works hand in hand.
0: I guess it's storytelling. Edits.
1: yeah it's storytelling you're yeah. right. it yeah. is it yeah. is. Yes and as an actor, you're right that's that's a good point. You have to be a storyteller when you're an actor. Mm. And sometimes, even when I'm playing a part and something's not there mm-hmm. that I think is something missing here do I not have enough information? Then I might have to infuse something on the part, or just a little something little yeah. bit that's maybe just in my mind yeah. that I can illuminate yeah. the character. So it is, yeah. Sometimes yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I can take little clues from that book.
0: Yeah. What about an album, some music to listen to?
1: Um, maybe one of the Beatles albums because I don't know. That's when I first—I don't know which one, but I when I was first really learning about music. I mean, I had older sisters and brothers. They were all about 10 years older yeah. than me. And so when they were really getting into music and I was really little, that was the music they were playing and anything Beatles I listen to. And it makes me feel happy. It makes me feel like nostalgic for a time when all of us were home. I'm one of five children and everybody was older than me and just, you know, we were all together and it was just, it was nice. So anything Beatles, really.
0: You just reminded me, of, yeah, I think one of the first singles my brother ever bought was Yellow Submarine. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I can It's a
1: great song. I it's mean, a great
0: song. And I meet yeah. on the flip side is Eleanor Rigby. Um, it's a wonderful contrast. Um, mm-hmm. for the, for the two. What about um, favorite food or drink?
1: Favorite food or drink? Well, my favorite food that I could never live without is potato chips. I love potato chips. Crisps, as yes. you call them. Yes. I just, I'm crazy for crisps. Uh, so I, I I can't really go anywhere, especially into the afterlife without my crisps. Um, and as far as a drink, I would have to take with me Sancerre—that's my favorite white wine—is the Sancerre, right. so I'll take that right. with me. Right. Yeah.
0: And what favor potato chips?
1: Well, I, any kind really will <laughs> do. Uh, I like them all—the thin, <laughs> the thin light ones, the crisp ones, um, the flavored ones. I right. was in France a couple of years ago, and they had to, chicken and tomato potato chips oh wow and yeah they they were amazing they tasted like chicken and tomato and potato I felt like I was eating a little meal you know (laughs) uh that that was crazy we don't have as many crazy flavors over here as they do other places when I go other places I feel like yeah other countries make crazier flavors yeah
0: yeah, yeah, I yeah, I remember at one stage we had baked hedgehog in this country as a crisp. Fl- I don't think you can get it any longer.
1: Oh, uh, maybe not enough people went for that. Yeah. One, it might be going a little too far. Yeah, just, just a baked little too hedgehog. weird. Yeah. yeah.
0: What, a, what about a piece of visual art painting a, a landscape or a statue or a.
1: You know. mm. Well, I guess i like i like matisse a lot i like ah. the look of you know the blue the colors the blue color and the you know the kind of wavy sort of surrealistic lines of things i feel i find his work very calming mm. and interesting at the same time right um the cutouts i really like the matisse cutouts um they did a a really nice exhibit of that that i think was going around the world a couple of years ago and I went. I went three times to see it, um, just to look at these big cutouts that were in the rooms. Just the shapes and everything were, uh, yeah. You know, the big shapes were just beautiful to look at.
0: It's the the, this, the figures dancing in the circle is is one mm-hmm. of my favorites, and I mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I get Matisse. I love Matisse as well. Mm-hmm. And what about a luxury? Just something else that just makes your life more comfortable and more pleasurable
1: my sparkling water maker <laughs> I I am long time married and I told my husband my most favorite thing is the ring that he gave me
0: uh-huh.
1: and my sparkling water maker uh, because I love him <clears throat> and this is sparkly and my sparkling water maker I, I can't live without bubbly water I don't like flat water and I don't drink soda. I don't right. drink anything sugary, but I just love plain, ultra sparkling water. So I can't live without my sparkling water maker.
0: Right. Right. Mm. Yes. It's so refreshing. I get that. Yeah. I was talking about those the other day. Uh, they, We don't have one, but um, yeah.
1: Brilliant. Wow.
0: Soda stream. We we're talking about the old fashioned. A
1: soda stream. The, uh, well, actually, they call, they call them soda stream now. Oh, right. right. It is called a soda stream.
0: Yeah, yeah, because I yeah. was thinking that you used to be the one to, sort of the 1930s style with the thing that used to twist the canister into. And the, yes, 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 yes.
1: Uh-huh.
0: This, is, this is what I associate with that. Barbara, thank you so much for joining thank me today. You, this has been wonderful.
1: It's lovely talking with you. Thank you so much.
0: It's my pleasure. Well, take care of yourself and hopefully oh where where can people find out about what you're up to? Um Twitter, you mentioned?
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter. mostly. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I don't really do Facebook as much anymore. I don't know. Just everybody gets too angry. They get angry on Twitter too, but I kind of keep to myself and just do my own thing there and then on Instagram, yeah.
0: My thanks again to Barbara Crampton. What a lovely lady and fascinating stories. Join me next week on The Chattering Hour. And in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Teatime Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome-West. Composer Kevin McLeod. copyright Teatime Productions.